John Spicer was the best salsa dancer with the biggest audience ever in TV history. Period. The lead starts right now. Happening right now, the president's former campaign manager testifying in the House's first impeachment inquiry and not giving an inch in defense of his old boss. Cruise missiles allegedly launched in a way meant to mask where they came from. A source telling CNN there's high probability the attack on Saudi oil originated in Iran. Will that move President Trump and the U.S. closer to war? Plus... She's got a crowd for that. Senator Elizabeth Warren speaking to her biggest in-person audience yet in the shadow of Wall Street. But will that energy translate to the votes she needs to beat Joe Biden and ultimately President Trump? Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin with breaking news. House Democrats right now holding their first impeachment inquiry, and it has gotten ugly fast. Testifying today is former Trump campaign manager Corey Lewandowski, who at the direction of the White House is refusing to answer most questions. Lewandowski never worked in the White House, which makes the White House's claim of executive privilege quite questionable, according to legal scholars. Democrats want Lewandowski to talk about meetings with the president described in the Mueller report, including one in which the president told Lewandowski to order the attorney general, Jeff Sessions, to say publicly that the special counsel's investigation was not fair and to announce that Sessions would be instructing Mueller to refocus the investigation to look at future elections. Lewandowski today is doing seemingly everything he can to frustrate the Democrats seeking his testimony. CNN's Manu Raju is on Capitol Hill. Manu, what has Lewandowski been willing to say about these meetings he had with President Trump? Well, he's defending the meeting, saying that there was nothing illegal that the president wanted done. He said he didn't have any concerns with the president's private comments to him about limiting the scope of the Mueller probe. Now, he did confirm the elements that were in the Mueller report, namely that those meetings that occurred in 2017, the president directing Lewandowski to deliver a message to Jeff Sessions to unrecuse himself, to limit the investigation going forward, instead focus on future campaigns. He said that those are accurate descriptions in the Mueller report. But, Jake, it took him some time to get there. Initially, he would not. He said he didn't, wasn't aware of some of the things that were in the Mueller report. He said he needed his memory refreshed. He had to read from the report. Democrats said that this was simply a stall tactic and led to a back and forth between Democrats and Republicans over the rules. And we've seen a lot of theatrics play out. But the overall theme is this. Lewin Lewandowski confirming those elements of the report and also pushing back and attacking Democrats, even at one point, Jake, saying that Democrats appear to hate the president more than they love this country. And, and Manu, repeatedly, Lewandowski has cited the White House counsel, even though he has never been an employee of the White House. Yeah, and that has absolutely frustrated Democrats throughout this hearing. They said he has not been an employee. The White House has no right to say that he cannot talk about his conversations with the president. But Lewandowski is not giving an inch. Congressman, the White House has directed not, I not disclose the substance of any discussions with the president or his advisors to protect executive branch yes. confidentiality. The White House has directed not disclose the substance of How any discussions. The White House has directed not disclose the substance of any discussions with the president. The White House has directed not disclose the substance of any discussions with the president or his advisors to protect executive branch confidentiality. 
Now, at this hearing today, Jake, Rick Dearborn and Rob Porter, two former White House aides, were subpoenaed and expected to testify today, but they have not shown up because the White House took steps to block their testimony as well, saying they have absolute immunity as senior-level presidential advisors. They said they are not, they, they don't have to testify before Congress, and of course, Democrats are objecting to that as well and fighting a separate matter, Don McGahn's testimony, to come to Capitol Hill because the White House has cited a similar matter, saying he is immune from testifying as well. That will play out in the coming weeks and months in court. Jake. All right, Manu Raja on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Jackie Speer of California. She's on both the House Intelligence and the House Oversight Committees. Uh, Congresswoman, uh, thanks so much for joining us as always. Take a listen uh, to the ranking Republican on the House Judiciary Committee, Republican Congressman Doug Collins, in his opening statement. It has become, let's read the Mueller report for audiobook. That's what we've become. We had Mr. Mueller here. Had a long day of it. Judging by all accounts, it didn't go real well. You like having the press here. You like the cameras. Because it makes it appear like something's happening that's not. Congresswoman, what's your response? Well, there was a fair amount of theatrics being played out by both Mr. Collins and by Mr. Lewandowski. Uh, I think you have to look at Mr. Lewandowski as an adverse witness. He had no interest in complying with this actual subpoena outside of showing up. He intended to uh, obstruct justice once again, frankly, by not being willing to give answers to questions by the Democrats. Uh, I think if I were... Mr. Nadler, right now, I would be slapping Mr. Lewandowski with an inherent contempt uh, order and calling him in front of the House of Representatives and fining him because he is a key witness because in the Mueller report there were 10 incidents where Mr. Mueller said, but for the Department of Justice uh, decision, the guidance that they would not file an action against the seated president, that there would not be an indictment made. He, this is one of the key elements that shows the president was attempting to obstruct justice by giving Corey Lewandowski a uh, script that he was supposed to turn over to then Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, to stop the Mueller investigation. So, Congresswoman, I mean, that, that kind of feeds into the next question I have, which is, I've seen a lot of critics saying uh, that House Democrats are too timid when it comes to dealing with the Trump administration, uh, that you're never going to get them to cooperate until you actually start treating them with the same hardball tactics uh, that they treat you. You're, you are saying that you think Jerry Nadler, the chairman the, the, of the House Judiciary Committee, should uh, cite Lewandowski, uh, a, a issue a citation so he's in contempt of Congress. That's what you're saying? That's correct. That's really where I stand on it. I certainly uh, would not try to uh, suggest what Mr. Nadler should be doing, but if I were in his shoes, uh, that's where I would be doing, because it's very clear what they want to do. They want to prevent us from doing a fulsome investigation of impeachment, and they will prevent people from coming to testify. We will then go to court under a civil contempt proceedings, where then that will wind its way through court over a long period of time, and we'll get that result two or three years down the road. Uh, this is a president that does not respect the rule of law. How many more examples do we need to put before the American people to establish that? You were among those uh, on the House Intelligence Committee that got to question Lewandowski back in April 2018. Uh, sources told CNN that he repeatedly cursed at lawmakers uh, to make the point that he would not talk about issues that he did not find 
relevant. So I can't imagine you're surprised by his stonewalling today. What, what's the point of having a hearing with a hostile witness? Well, you could have a hearing with a hostile witness if you can extract from that individual uh, important information. He is refusing to answer. And so when you refuse to answer, I think you have but one course of action, and that is by um, ensuing what would be called inherent contempt, and then start fining him. And the only thing that talks around this administration is money. So if you start fining him, let's say five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars a day, uh, at some point you're going to get him to comply. Well, let me ask you one other question because I asked you a question about critics on, uh, who think you guys aren't being you House Democrats aren't being tough enough. What about those on the right or the middle of the country? who say, I don't understand what you're even doing. The Mueller report didn't find any evidence of conspiracy. Uh, why are you even having this hearing as opposed to uh, doing the work of the American people? What would you say to them? Well, what I would say to them is that we can, in fact, walk and chew gum at the same time. Uh, there have been over 100 bills passed by the House that are sitting over on the Senate side that aren't being taken up, one of which is just closing loopholes on the background check law that's been in existence since the 1990s, before there was an internet, before there were gun shows, and yet uh, Mr. Uh, Majority Leader over there, Mr. Grim Reaper, does not want to take it up. So uh, I say we have a very clear responsibility to pursue impeachment. I'm one of those from the very beginning that believed that if you have over 250 contacts with Russians, as the Trump campaign did, if you have 32 in-person meetings, as the Trump campaign did with Russian operatives, yes, I do think that there was Russian engagement welcomed by the Trump campaign. And then you have over 10 obstruction of justice incidents in which the Mueller report established that but for the fact you can't indict a sitting president based on DOJ guidelines, that doesn't mean the, the Congress doesn't have the right to impeach. In fact, that's exactly where it should be taking place. Congresswoman Jackie Spear, thanks so much for your, for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jake. Let's chew over all this with our experts. Uh, Amanda, let me start with you. Um, so one of the questions here is about uh, the meeting that President Trump had with Lewandowski when he told him to tell uh, Jeff Sessions, then the attorney general, uh, that to, to instruct um, Sessions to tell the public that Mueller's investigation is unfair mm -hmm. uh, and that he's going to tell Mueller to stop looking at things that happened in the past and instead look at the future. Lewandowski said he didn't think the message was illegal, but he didn't deliver the message. He says he just didn't deliver it because uh, he was on vacation. Yeah, somehow <laughs> it just got lost in the mail. Listen, it is clear from the Mueller report he was a willing agent of obstruction, attempted obstruction, because they didn't actually obstruct justice. But we're all thinking, what was the point of this hearing today? Republicans, a lot of Trump people talk about owning the libs. Corey Lewandowski owned the Judiciary Committee today. Jerry Nadler played a stupid game, and they won a stupid prize, because Corey Lewandowski just made a sham of that. Republicans on the committee, with their, you know, mockery of the process. This system is broken. If the Democrats wanted to go impeach the president, they should have started that process a long time ago. I don't know what they were looking to get from Corey Lewandowski that they couldn't already get from the Mueller report. They need to drop this. You can't do an impeachment in election year. It's going to look terrible. So they need to figure out a game plan because it's clear they have no idea how to handle this administration. I want to bring in Laura Coates, a legal expert. Um, and, and Laura, what do you make of, and do, of uh, Congresswoman Jackie Spear saying that Lewandowski... Uh, is not answering the questions, and therefore Chairman Nadler should hold him in contempt of Congress. 
Well, she's accurate. He has been stonewalling. And as Amanda alluded to, he believes he's been successful in trying to make a mockery of this entire hearing and transform it to a circus. But they do have other issues and they all have other means at their disposal. Number one, there is con- there is contempt. They can either have the sergeant in arms detain and arrest him. That's not going to happen. They can ask the U.S. attorney in D.C. to file a criminal prosecution against him. Unlikely, because if he is in contempt, he's still somebody who has an association with Donald Trump, the head executive branch. The third way is to look to the courts and say, listen, what we saw here is somebody who was acting as if he was trying to, in some way, um, channel Robert Mueller, asking for continual references to the text as a way of drawing out the clock, running out the play clock in this case. Now, he changed tactics later on, Jake, so it may be that they'll have a a harder time proving he was truly obstructive in of itself. But I want to remind people about one thing. Remember, the third article of impeachment against Richard Nixon was actually obstruction of Congress. And so it may very well be that one of, and I'm just guessing here, and one of the tactics that the Democrats are using here is to say, look, it was the White House counsel who was behind Corey Lewandowski. It is them who was instructing him to obstruct Congress in some meaningful way. Maybe they're trying to add another hash mark in that particular corner of obstruction and using it in this in this means. Whether it, it's during an election year it'll prove fruitful is a very different story. Um, Kirsten, take a listen to one uh, scrap on the committee early on between the, the ranking Republican uh, Doug Collins and the chairman Jerry Nadler. Mr. Chairman, I have a motion. Not, o- Mr. Not Chairman, only, I have a motion. You will wait for your motion until I finish this. Point of order, then. Not, not only point of order has got a, to be recognized. Not in the middle. Of yes, it does. The motion is to. Since the chairman is not following the House rules, I move to adjourn. You know, I, I, Brooke Baldwin saw some of this, uh, the anchor before us, and said something like, "You know, this is this is really what the, the House of Representatives is working on." Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it is utter dysfunction, uh, as you pointed out. I think the least surprising thing is that Corey Lewandowski would show up on the Hill and chaos and dysfunction would reign. Um, but, you know, th- th- that is about what you could expect from him. So I don't know what they thought they were going to get by having him come. I mean, basically stonewalling in the beginning and then finally starting to answer questions, but in, in a pretty dishonest way. I mean, he didn't not deliver it because he went on vacation. Like, that's that kind of fails the smell test. Uh, and you think he didn't deliver it because he thought it was illegal? I, or I mean, I can't prove that, but I, but I do, you know, it's very unlikely that somebody that works at his level in Washington is that close to the president, makes decisions around vacations. That's just not really the way things work here. Um, you know, maybe Corey's really into hashtag self-care. I don't know. But um, I think that it's, <laughs> it's more likely that he, uh, it's more likely that he, he recognizes something was wrong. Do you think that the Democrats are handling uh, the hearing today well? Is this the right thing for them to be doing? I wish I could say I thought it was a good decision, but I just can't. I completely agree with Amanda. And, you know, frankly, I don't understand why they didn't just stop it halfway through, right? It was so clear, and I completely agree with Kirsten, obvious that this was how this was going to play out. They know this is how Lewandowski is. Rather than let him sit there and be disrespectful and say to, you know, Eric Sewell, President Sewell, and... You know, all these different and just make a mockery of the whole thing. I would have just stopped it and said, you know, if you're not going to take this seriously, then contempt of Congress, whatever it is. But don't give him the airtime to continue to make a mockery of this whole thing. What do you think? Now, Lewandowski didn't answer questions at the request. They, they say it's the order, but really just a request of the White House counsel. The House representative's argument is with the White House. 
The only way to resolve an argument with the White House is to impeach the president of the United States. This idea that you're going to go to have, let's have a contempt citation of Lewandowski and that'll go through court. That, in fact, that all strikes me as ridiculous. And they should have, if, if they think he, the president obstructed justice and they, why were they having Lewandowski to confirm what the Mueller report says? No one's challenged a single factual account in the Mueller report, right? They could have done that in five minutes. Mr. Lewandowski, do you have any problems with the Mueller report? No, it's factual as far as it goes. Fine, thank you. They should impeach him or they should not impeach him. And, you know, you know, if I can say, by the way, we should all be pointing out the fact that Corey Lewandowski is trying to say that he is covered somehow under the executive privilege. He did not ever have a job at the White House. He was not a part of the executive branch. He was not a part of the administration. And it's really being used prospectively. And the courts have never looked at the idea of saying, look, just because you may one day end up being a president of the United States, you're, you're covered. Imagine if anyone of, say, Kamala Harris's staff right now said, whatever conversation we have right now, if you become president, president will be covered, you would laugh at that notion. Here, he's using it to play Congress. All right. Thanks, one and all. Everyone stick around. We have breaking news in the world lead. Polls have now closed in Israel on a major task for Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, and his close relationship with President Trump. The first hint at Netanyahu's chances of surviving re-election. That's next. Breaking news, we have our first exit polls from the Israeli election, and right now the results are too close to call. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu trying for a fifth term after a second election was called, uh, called off, uh, called rather, because of his failure to secure enough support in parliament to form a government just a few months ago. We know from the last election that these early exit polls are hardly definitive, but they are still closely watched. Netanyahu is also facing corruption charges. CNN's Oren Lieberman is live for us in Netanyahu's campaign headquarters in Tel Aviv. And Oren, what, what are the latest exit polls suggesting? As you said, all three exit polls from the main Israeli TV stations all project or suggest that this race remains too close to call. One has them tied at 32 seats apiece. One gives Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's rival, former IDF chief of staff Benny Gantz, a one-seat lead, and the other gives Gantz a two-seat lead. But that's within the margin of error. Moreover, there is actually a bit of a celebratory atmosphere here at Likud headquarters as it begins to fill up as the hours pass on. Why is that with an election that's too close to call? Well, many here believe that exit polls are wrong, as they have been in the past, and moreover, that exit polls underestimate the performance of Benjamin Netanyahu's Likud party. So they are waiting for actual results, which should start coming in the next hour or so, to see if those exit polls are adjusted and if Netanyahu outperformed the exit polls and the projections they made. Crucially, though, that's only half the political calculus here. Netanyahu or Gantz also has to put together a governing coalition, which Netanyahu failed to do following April's election. And there, all three exit polls suggest that neither Netanyahu nor Gantz has an easy or clear path towards apparently putting together a government. And that means perhaps one of the only things you can say with any level of certainty at this point, Jake, is that Israel may well be in store for even more political uncertainty in the weeks and months ahead. Crucially, neither of these leaders, Gantz or Netanyahu, appears ready to make any kind of speech, whether it's a concession speech or a victory speech. Everyone wants to see the actual results because both of these leaders made premature victory speeches last April. That's right. Uh, votes are always preferable to uh, exit polls. Uh, Oren, we know from the last election in April that these polling projections are not always accurate. When can we expect the actual firm final results? When will we know? 
The results aren't official until Friday. That's when they're certified as final results. But by 6 or 7 in the morning, something like 80, 90 plus percent of the votes are counted, and that gives us a far clearer idea of if these exit polls were worth anything to begin with. Right now, they're just that, a projection. All right, Oren Lieberman in Tel Aviv, thanks so much. Joining me now is Natan Sachs. He's director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Uh, Natan, thanks so much for being here. What do, you, what do you make of it? What's your response? Well, too close to call is exactly the right uh, call on it. Of course, Netanyahu is very unhappy at the moment. For him, he needed 61 seats out of 120. If these polls hold, and that's a huge if, he doesn't have them. That means that That's with the coalition, though, not just his exactly. party. Yeah. So his party might have 32, 33, but he needs a coalition of over half of the Knesset. If he doesn't get it, then actually the most interesting man is neither Netanyahu nor opposition leader Gantz, but someone named Avigdor Lieberman, who is Netanyahu's old age from the 1990s, then he was foreign minister, then he was defense minister. He's the man who forced Netanyahu to these new elections, and he's the one who would become kingmaker if we have this result, while neither man having 61-4 coalition. Lieberman enjoys tormenting Netanyahu. That's part of Netanyahu's problem. Lieberman has nerves of steel, and he may try to force a national unity government perhaps even without Netanyahu. I'll just caveat this. Israelis, especially on the right wing, actually tend to lie to pollsters because they see pollsters as part of the liberal evil elite. We, of course, know nothing about that in the United States. <laughs> and that means that the polls are sometimes biased towards the left. Now, pollsters know this. They try to correct, but we don't know if they've corrected enough. That's why we have to wait three or four hours to get a little bit of a taste of the real results. And, and as Oren said, later in the morning, we'll know much more. I guess that thou shall not bear false witness doesn't mean much when it comes to exit pollsters. So uh, Lieberman had five votes in the April election, and he was trying to get uh, Netanyahu to agree to some things, including forcing the ultra-Orthodox to serve in the military. Uh, And Netanyahu wouldn't go along with it uh, because the the ultra-Orthodox are part of his base. Is he going to have five votes this time around, too, Lieberman? Lieberman actually made this huge gambit. Five seats, I should exactly, say. Exactly, yes. Yeah. He had a huge gambit, and he seems to have gained in power. Some of the, uh, one of the polls has him at seven, one of the, at eight, perhaps even more. So he probably gained from this gambit, which is a huge political coup for him. And if he succeeds, what this means is that he'll be able to force his agenda. Now, I want to be clear. Conscription of the ultra-Orthodox, that was political theater. Uh, Lieberman sat in governments that didn't do it, and even the bill he supported wouldn't really have done it. But this allowed him to capture the niche of secular right wing. That's something that he saw political opportunity in. And if these poll results are true, a big if, he was right. All right. Fascinating stuff. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Next, the trail of evidence raising new questions about who really attacked Saudi Arabia's oil facilities as President Trump points the finger at Iran. Stay with us. Our world lead now. Today we know more about where the U.S. and Saudi governments believe those attacks on Saudi oil fields came from and whom they believe to be responsible. A source telling CNN that U.S. and Saudi officials have determined with very high probability the strikes were launched from an Iranian base close to the Iraq border and that part of the evidence collected includes a fully intact circuit board and parts from missiles that failed to hit their targets. Mapping the trajectory of the missiles is, of course, a key focus of the investigation. CNN's Tom Foreman is in the virtual studio for us. And, Tom, the missiles may have been launched in such a way so as to avoid radar detection? Yeah, Jake, it certainly seems possible. Look, these analysts think these were launched somewhere up here along this border with Kuwait and Iraq, flew over Kuwait and then down to hit these oil facilities down here. And they know that Iran has one of the most robust missile programs in the entire 
region, including some far-ranging cruise missiles. One example, there's this design based on Soviet cruise missiles that's about 24 feet long. It can be launched from a mobile launcher, like a truck. And while it travels at subsonic speed, like all cruise missiles, it hugs the Earth, dodging radar for hundreds of miles, and this absolutely could produce this kind of damage. But hold on. The Houthi rebels in Yemen say they were responsible. Why are these analysts focusing on the Iranians for this instead of the Houthis? Several reasons. This is the largest oil processing facility in the world. There were 17 individual hits here. They appear, according to these analysts, to have come from the north. That's the direction of Iran, not from the south. That is the direction of Yemen and the Houthis. Also, they were very precise. Look at these details on these four round tanks. Almost identical hits on each one in the same spot. That speaks to a degree of sophistication which the Iranians absolutely have, the Houthis not so much. And the Iranians have been known to hit oil targets. Again, this is not a pattern the Houthis have shown a lot of affinity for. So you can see while the evidence is starting to point more and more toward the Iranians and, frankly, you may see the results a little bit more too. Right now, the average cost of a gallon of gas in the United States is $2.56 a gallon. Some experts believe that the interruption in the world oil supply because of these attacks could push that up by about 25% in the next few weeks. And who knows how long it'll stay there. Jake? All right, Tom Foreman in the virtual room. Thank you so much. Joining me now to discuss this is former FBI and CIA analyst Phil Mudd. Uh, Phil, the fact that some of these cruise missiles did not explode, yeah. uh, according to officials, is obviously providing some evidence. How would the U.S. and or Saudis go about determining that they were Iranian. Boy, there's a ton of data that they should be looking at here. Think of the launch site. It appears we know where the launch site was. Think of the trajectory. we got a lot of allies out in the region, the Kuwaitis, the Jordanians, the Saudis, obviously, who track this thing. You mentioned on the ground, we've seen reports that there's a circuit board. You also want to see on the ground what the blast site looks like, whether there's residue, and then think afterwards. Presumably, we're trying to listen to the Iranians, including the military in the Arabian Sea. Are they talking about this? So there's a wealth of information that should be out there. And would they be able to figure out the trajectory of the missiles? And if so, how? They should be by looking not only at the, at the launch site, but looking at trajectory data coming in from friendly countries around the, around the, 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 uh, the region that spend a ton of money trying to determine not only where missiles are coming from, but also, like the Israelis, how you can stop those missiles once you get there. There should be technical information showing trajectory of a missile. The president has expressed uh, hesitation about getting into any sort of armed conflict with Iran. Yeah. Are there proportionate measures that the Saudis... Um, or whomever, I guess the U.S. as well, could potentially take without this turning into a full-scale war. Yeah, but, I mean, for example, you could talk about further sanctions. You, you could also talk about launch sites around the Arabian Peninsula, even places in Iran that weren't used for this kind of attack. Find some place that, that stores the same kinds of missiles and send a message. Here's the problem. The Germans are out saying, for example, today, we want diplomacy. If you want to go out for an aggressive event, an attack from the Americans, who's going to be with you beyond the Saudis? Germans, French, Brits? I'm not sure. And also, I think there's just skepticism. Why would anybody believe the Saudis? I mean, we've been talking for a year about how they killed Khashoggi, yeah. uh, Khashoggi the, the columnist, and lied about it repeatedly. I mean, why should we take anything that the Saudis have to say at face value? Well, they, they, that's half the problem. You want to go to the Europeans and say, hey, this country that murdered a journalist we want to line up to go after the Iranians with them. I think the Europeans are going to be tougher than us saying, why would we want to do that? The flip side is the Europeans are a lot closer to the Iranians than we do. 
They want to alienate the Iranians far less than we do. They're not going to sign up for this. All right, Phil Mudd, thanks so much. Coming up next, how Sean Spicer may have just conceded that he went too far with the Trumpian twist of a, a a tweet he sent about his salsa last night. Stay with us. We're back with our 2020 lead, and right now, Democratic presidential hopefuls are courting one of the party's most crucial voting blocs, union workers. This comes just hours after Senator Elizabeth Warren speaking to one of her largest crowds to date, making a veiled but fairly pointed argument about why Democrats should not support any candidate like, say, Joe Biden, just because they think he's the only one who can beat Trump. I know people are scared. We can't choose a candidate we don't believe in just because we're too scared to do anything else. And Democrats can't win if we're scared and looking backward. Let's chew over all this. What do you think about that argument? Well, it is the case that a woman has already beaten Trump in the popular vote. Mm -hmm. So the ability for a woman to beat Trump has already been proven. Um, And look, this is the message she's got to convey right now, right? Because the, the whole challenge in this primary is head over heart. People want to be inspired, but they want to win, right? And in their minds, they keep going back to who can win, who can win. So all the other candidates besides Biden have to keep making that case. I thought it was interesting that she chose to do anti-corruption. Uh, given, you know, Citizen, and Citizens United had a number of candidates who ran on that issue in the 2018 midterm and won. Mm-hmm. And I think it's something like 78 percent of battleground state voters, Republicans and Democrats actually support that. So that struck, struck me as a way to try to you know, reach, say, I can reach out to some of those moderate Republicans as well. So um, this electability argument isn't new, obviously. I remember in 2004 people saying Howard Dean's inspiring, but he can't beat George W. Bush, et cetera. Take a look at um, who voters think can beat Trump in this ABC News Washington Post poll from earlier this month. Forty two percent of Democratic leaning voters think they're be- uh, the best shot is Joe Biden. Then there's a huge drop off. Fourteen percent for Bernie Sanders, 12 percent uh, for Elizabeth Warren. What do you think? I think if Elizabeth Warren wants to persuade people she's electable, which she might be, she should abandon those of her positions that may well make her unelectable. This isn't about like some weird prejudice people have or looking backwards. It's uh, are people going to vote for a candidate who wants to take away private health insurance, basically decriminalize all crossing of the border, basically has endorsed confiscation of 15 million guns held by law abiding Americans. And what else is something? Oh, fr- and, and it's going to carry Pennsylvania by running for a national ban on fracking. But it is. I mean, it is. I mean, those are just those are her positions. And maybe someone maybe there's look, I myself think there might still be a case for removing Donald Trump from the White House, even for someone with those positions. But I do think it's a heavier lift than, some, than a Democrat who doesn't have those positions. But it is also the case. I mean, particularly if you look at Hillary's numbers, that it is hard for a woman, particularly when we're talking about executive office, to get elected and Men tend to be white men, African-American men, Latino men. We still, that is still a hurdle for women, yeah, period. Let me just say, I, I know the headlines are focusing on the fact that Warren is making the electability argument against Biden, but the meat of her speech, which you look at it, she is stealing the Bernie mantle. The whole thing was ho- about how corporations are supposedly to blame for the healthcare crisis, for gun violence, for climate change. You name it. And that is exactly the kind of message that Bill is pointing out that will turn off people that might want to give her a chance. She needs to knock Bernie out of the way. But by stealing the mantle, she is going to force a choice in the Democratic primary between a moderate, probably more likable message for independent voters and then this extreme Bernie version. And if she loses, it won't be because she's a woman. It's because she's adopting that extreme mantle. What do you think? I, I don't think that those positions are that extreme. 
And I think that, you know, let's face it, she's not really going to win with Republicans voting for her. I know the Republicans who don't like Trump are, Mm -hmm. you know, very much looking for somebody who's going to appeal to them. We've got a couple of them. Yeah, but that's not really, you know, sorry, you're anomalies. You really are. I mean, that's not in the Republican. You're lovely anomalies. You're yeah. lovely. I take anomalies you're a compliment. I take anomalies yeah. a compliment. But, but the truth is, you very know, most looking. Republicans will vote for Trump. That's what's going to happen. That's the way these things work. And, and it doesn't really matter what's happening in the polls right now, because until there's a one-on-one race, we don't, we don't really know where people are going. So I think it's important for her to be speaking to Democrats and to independent-leaning Democrats. Okay, so I do want to bring in uh, this latest sign of the pending apocalypse. Uh, Sean Spicer <laughs> on Dancing with the Stars. Uh, I'm just going to let this live. Uh, it's an extremely weird, beyond flashy salsa. Uh, but so it, this wasn't enough for Spicer. He went and put a Trumpian twist on it. He tweeted, quote, Clearly, the judges aren't going to be with me. Let's send a message to hashtag Hollywood that those of us who stand for hashtag Christ won't be discounted. He since deleted uh, that tweet, um, wondering, uh, you're a person of faith. What, what do, is, it, is Jesus really invested in Sean Spicer winning Dancing with the Stars? Is this... Jesus loves Sean Spicer. He loves everyone he at loves the table, but he doesn't care about who wins Dancing with the Stars. Listen, I like Dancing with the Stars. I think we need lighthearted, happy, fun television. But they made a choice to bring Sean Spicer in the program, okay? And now it's blowing back on the show because he's making crude plays for votes by playing the Jesus card on Twitter. It's weird. I didn't. I, what did you think of it all? We, we live in a, a majority Christian country. You're not persecuted if you're a Christian. I'm sorry. You're just not. Well, he and, thinks he is. He thinks I know. He's oh, and, and, okay, but yeah. that shirt was a sin. Yeah. Let's just say that. That was a sin. And I'm a Catholic, so. Do you have any thoughts no. about the shimmying? It's the end of, it's the, end of the Republic. It's the, last days, it's the last days of Rome. Three-headed dogs walking down the street. Thanks, one and all. President Trump today in prime enemy territory, how he's calling out his critics in California as leaders there are pushing back on his policies. Stay with us. Internationally today, President Trump is arriving in California this afternoon for a series of high-dollar fundraisers for his re-election campaign, but he's doing so in a state the L.A. Times says has embraced its role as chief antagonist of President Trump, as CNN's Kyung La reports for us now from Los Angeles. One thing I won't do is roll over. One thing I won't do is capitulate. California's governor, Gavin Newsom, clutching tighter the unofficial mantle as the leader of the Trump resistance. We are nothing less than a progressive answer to a transgressive president. This week, the president is fundraising in his backyard, enemy territory for the Trump agenda. Look, stay out of our way. Uh, Let California continue not to survive, but thrive, despite the headwinds, despite everything you're doing to try to put sand in the gears of our success. California is involved in nearly 60 lawsuits against the Trump White House, jamming the proverbial crowbar in Trump's agenda, from immigration to climate change regulations. Newsom wields California's $3 trillion economy with heft. It's a potentially risky play, with Newsom's progressive agenda on the line. A booming state economy with an exploding homeless crisis. Look at Los Angeles with the tents and the horrible, horrible, disgusting conditions. Ahead of Trump's West Coast swing, the White House floated a plan to deregulate housing to increase supply. 
a clear dig at California. So he's got to find the areas where we're not performing. And that's the issue of poverty, affordability, and homelessness, and exploit those as a way of tearing down a new governing philosophy. If you look at some of the barbs you both have shared on Twitter. There's a few. There's a few. There's a good bit. And it's offline, too. How about this clown in California? Newsom responded by tweet, saying Trump is literally locking up kids like Pennywise, the scary clown from the movie It. Do you relish that fight? No, but if he calls me a clown, I called him Pennywise. Forgive me. Interestingly, we communicate, um, not in public, on the phone, uh, in person. Um, And he's very gracious in those calls. And I hope in turn I am as well. Now, these leaders have been known to work together, but here's a story, Jake, that gets to the complexity of this relationship. Earlier this summer, Governor Newsom was prepared to sign a bill that would require any presidential candidate like Trump to hand over his or her taxes in order to make the state primary ballot. Governor Newsom didn't want President Trump to hear this news just through the regular channels like, you know, the news. He called him personally, Jake, so he could hear his reaction. Jake. Mm. Young La in Los Angeles, thanks so much. Coming up, a goodbye to a broadcast pioneer, a trailblazer, and a dear friend. That's next. A sad day for people who knew Cokie Roberts. She blazed a trail for women in journalism. She told the stories of those who paved the way for her, but were overlooked. And today we're saying goodbye to veteran journalist and my friend and former colleague at ABC News, Cokie Roberts. Her family announced uh, that she died from complications from breast cancer at 75 years old. Roberts worked four decades in broadcast journalism, starting when few women held prominent roles in smoke-filled newsrooms. She enjoyed over five golden decades with her husband, Stephen, with whom she wrote a weekly news column. One just this week titled, Truth Tellers Are Heroes. Our thoughts are with Stephen, their children and grandchildren, all of those whose lives she touched, including our friends at ABC News. May Cokie Roberts' memory be a blessing. Our coverage on CNN continues right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.